Why 480? It's the number that drives our work lives. 480 minutes. That's all you have every workday. And the decisions that you make each minute can change everything. When you plan out your business goals over the next two years, that's only 480 workdays to get it done. In your entire 40-year career, you've only got 480 months to make an impact with your work. Time is the limit we can't control. Because time is your most precious resource. This is the Leadership 480 Podcast. Hi, I'm Beth Alm, and I'm your host today for Leadership 480, the podcast that's all about making the most of every moment of leadership. And today's topic is a big one because it's about both those little everyday moments that make a difference, as well as those big career-changing moments that set you on a different path for your life. Because today, we are talking about diversity and inclusion. And that happens both in the little moments and the big ones. And I am so excited uh, to have our guest here today, Tacey Byam. She is our CEO here at DDI. Now, Tacey, I'm going to start with the obvious. You're a woman CEO, which is still a rarity in today's world. How has that shaped your view of the importance of diversity and inclusion? Thanks, Beth, and hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And I, it's a great question. I mean, as as I stepped into CEO almost four years ago, um, you really come to realize when you walk into a room of fellow executives how rare it is to be a female CEO. Um, you look around the room, and we do not have very much diversity, typically. And so what that tends to mean is that there's a lot of focus, a lot of attention, but I also have to say a lot of support. Um, I'm pleased to be a member of a number of women leader organizations, um, and we share best practices and support each other uh, in those roles. Uh, so very inclusive environment that we are creating and that we're also creating for our organizations. Um, you asked a little bit about um, what it is to be a rare and CEO, and I, I think what is so interesting is that that we're called out because at the end of the day, we rose to the top um, despite the fact that we might not have been given all of the same opportunities, despite the fact that there maybe were a number of barriers along the way. Um, or people didn't see us in those roles. So we all think that the world is a meritocracy, that if you put in the hard work, you will rise. But the reality is that there are many people inside of organizations that have hidden potential, that we need to play a prominent role in changing that for the future, uncovering that potential, surfacing that activating that, and accelerating that potential. So have you ever felt like you were overlooked? Great question. Also, um, overlooked is probably not the term I would use. It was more like people made assumptions. Um, in my particular case, the, the most resident memory for me was about 10 years ago. And um and I was flying high. I was in the high potential pool um, here at DDI. And so I was given a real stretch assignment. 
Um, and in that stretch assignment, I was made head of a R&D incubator group. And um, I had a group of fellow colleagues. Um, they had more tenure than I did, two incredible women who had great wisdom, um, one gentleman who was coming in from the outside and bringing his expertise. And I was leading this group as we were creating a brand new system. And it was exciting. It was fast moving. And as we were moving through this process, while we were trying a whole lot of things, we were failing fast, we had a number of different pipelines of work that we're, we're, we're focusing on. Um, what really struck me was the fact that we had this opportunity to promote to the entire organization what we were about to launch. And who got tapped to do that? Not me as the leader of the group, but the gentleman who was on my team. And he, interestingly, had been spending time talking to others about when this got out of the R&D incubator, he wanted to be the leader. He had all this expertise, but he had no more expertise than I did. So I, while I wasn't overlooked, there were assumptions that were made that I really liked doing the hard work, doing the R&D, and being less visible than I was at the time. And so those assumptions about individuals can hold them back simply because I was heads down waiting, but the reality was I wasn't declaring myself. And in fact, when I found this out, I talked to our president at the time, told him that I wanted the job and I was ready to step up and here's why I was the best candidate. Gave him a, a whole lot of examples and where the risks were going to be if he went with another candidate. Uh, the gentleman, by the way, <laughs> and and um, and I got the job. But what was so striking is that Bob said to me, he goes, gosh, I thought you were happy. I thought you liked exactly what you were doing. I didn't think you even wanted it. So it's the assumptions that are made about individuals that you're right, could mean that they do get overlooked for that. And that's why I've dedicated myself in this space of helping women think about what they need to do to advance themselves in their careers, I've dedicated myself to making sure that we push and nudge those individuals forward. Even when you're not thinking you're ready, you're more than ready. And so that's a big part of what it means and what it takes to make change. That's so interesting that you brought up the point that you felt uh, you, you were heads down working hard and sort of waiting for someone else to say, uh, that you were doing a great job, that you were ready for the next role, whereas the gentleman you're competing against was declaring himself and declaring his readiness for, for the next step. And I think that that's such a common thing among women in particular, but also different minorities who may be, uh, you don't feel comfortable promoting yourself, uh, but that's a necessary part of getting ahead. Um so why do you think, you know, it doesn't sound to me like in that story, I mean, the gentleman wasn't necessarily going after you personally and the marketing team wasn't uh, purposefully overlooking you. But why do you think that, that that happened, that he was sort of the de facto face of this new product? Well, I do think it's a term du jour over the past 10 years, but unconscious bias definitely plays a role. And by unconscious bias, it's a natural thing. Um, you know, we all have um, biases that help us 
sort through all the information, be able to determine, um, make mental shortcuts around things. But at the same time, when they veer over towards um, missing opportunities for individuals or overgeneralizing, that's when we can have mistakes. And so uh, specifically, I think there's an unconscious bias image of what success looks like. Um, you probably know there's a researcher who's uh, at the University of Warwick over in um, the UK, and she did an experiment that's been now repeated around the world, where you take a group of students. She's done it, this with third graders. She's done this with 12th graders. She's done this with MBA students. You, and you ask them, what does an effective leader look like? And they draw a picture. And Time after time after time, the picture that's drawn is a man. And this, again, is happening in kindergartners. So if success looks like what a man looks like, even though the man has can think outside the box or has really big ears because they're good listeners or they seem to be holding hands in the drawing because they're collaborating, those are good behaviors. But at the end of the day, if your mental image, if your unconscious bias is that of a man, then unfortunately those shortcuts are also the same shortcuts that get applied to people in the workplace. So I think that's really interesting. Um, as you mentioned, it's sort of the term du jour. We've talked about it for a long yeah. time, unconscious bias. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of people who would say that nowadays that's not such an issue anymore, that we've kind of moved past that. Uh so how do you feel about that? Do you feel like people have moved past that unconscious bias? I think there's more visibility and and to break unconscious bias, you have to have awareness. But what is so striking to me is I believe that data would show that people think and perceive that we are doing far better than we are about creating a gender equality in the workplace. And so, so two examples I can think of is one, female CEOs. Female CEOs, it's been quoted, are like shark attacks because they get such good publicity when we have new female CEOs that people think they're fairly frequent. But the reality is, they are not all of that high of a proportion. So people feel that of the Fortune 500, about 25% of the Fortune 500 is female CEOs. The reality is it's only 5%. And another one is McKinsey did some research with Lean In this past year, and they showed a executive team of nine men and one woman, and they asked, is that executive team diverse? And 45% of the men said, yes, it's diverse. And 34% of the women said, yes, it's diverse, with only one single female. Yet the percentage of people in the workforce that are women is about 53%. So there's diversity in the workforce, but not in the executive team. Yeah, I've heard that a lot, that there are, you know, there there aren't objective barriers that you see out there. You would say, yes, any woman can become CEO. Sure, there's nothing, there's nothing standing in the way. Women have done it. And yet it's so rare to actually see them. The numbers don't reflect it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know that you've been working on a book called Amplify, uh, and you've been collaborating, I think, with a journalist from Fortune magazine, Ellen McGirt. 
And uh, you've mentioned to me that you've been collecting some stories from women, both those really famous stories and women who've been flying under the radar, about their experiences in leadership. So can you share some of the stories that have had a powerful impact on you? Happy to. It's been a really exciting project. And uh, and it's interesting because some of the stories um, are coming from Ellen and I having done interviews or met people along the way, and others people are saying, oh, you really need to talk to so-and-so. They have a great story because they have been so inspiring. Uh, They've been so powerful. One of my personal stories was a couple years ago, um, we have a family friend who was coming out of university and entering the workforce for the first time. And, um, And her mother said that she had gotten a job in Washington, D.C. We're based in Pittsburgh, so Washington, D.C. is a bit away and, by the way, much more expensive cost of living. And and Katie wanted to go. However, the cost of living, and she needed really to negotiate a better salary than what they were offering her. And so Katie and I had coffee over the weekend, and we went back and forth on the numbers, but mainly we spent a lot of time about what words she would say to talk to her prospective um, employer about what she needed for the job. And and she looked at me and she said, Tacey, I'm just so grateful that they're giving me this job. I don't want to sound greedy. And I think that's so profound because how many times do we find ourselves in that really grateful position and not feeling greedy? And the reality is that um, negotiating salaries have a profound impact on not only your first job, but your second, third, and lifetime career and earnings potential around there. And so the fact that she even got to the offer stage put her in a position as everybody should be negotiating that opportunity. So that's one that's always stuck with me. Hmm. So it's not really greedy. It's just asking for what you're worth, what's reasonable. Uh, And again, I think that's another one that's so common with women in particular feeling uh, like you should be just grateful for what you're given rather than asking for more. Um, And I know that Ellen in particular has shared some of her stories with you as well and really had the chance to talk to high-profile women. So from going from that very first opportunity to negotiate your salary all the way up to the struggles that women at the very top of the top companies really are struggling with. Um, Has she shared any of those stories with you? Yeah, one of the people that uh, Ellen interviewed is um, Sally Krawcheck. Um, and you may know her so incredibly impressive. I want to meet her. I'm going to, I'm a huge fan already. Um, and um, she is, has a background on Wall Street, um, being in what she would call the boys club there. Um, and she had incredibly impressive results in her career. And back in 2008, Sally will tell you that she was watching TV and she found out that she had been fired because the CFO was of Citigroup, which is where she was working at the time, um, uh, had a clash with the CEO. And if you didn't know, at the time, Citigroup was under scrutiny for selling defective investment products. And Sally believed that her value was the company should reimburse clients for the bad investments to have a better relationship with them long term. 
Um, but the CEO was adamant that the company had no legal obligation to do so. And because of that clash, she got fired. But she didn't take that firing as a failure. She took that as a learning. And she went on to work for competitor banks. She went on to um, be able to grate outstanding profits. Um, and she went on in 2013 to purchase 85 Broads Unlimited LLC, a networking group for women in the financial industry. And she transformed them into Elevest. And Elevest is an incredible company that has an index fund to help advance women. And, um, and, I, and for that, she's one of my heroes. And we profile her in the book. And I think that's interesting, uh, that aspect of, you know, she's investing in companies where they're not all women or, or necessarily run by women, but they at least have a majority of women on the board or a representation of women on the board. Um, and I that's so interesting from the business performance aspect because Sally is a smart investor before anything else. Absolutely. Before being a women's advocate, she's a smart investor. Uh, and your story about her being the dissenting voice is so interesting. I think it um, speaks to the idea that when we have diversity among leadership, different thoughts, not that women are always a better moral compass than men or anything like that, that there's, when there's that diversity of thought uh, that we end up making better decisions rather than the CEO who sounded like he wanted to be living in an echo chamber. Is that something, that diversity of thought, something that you've seen and produces the business uh, benefits? Absolutely. In fact, um, there's an economist, Scott Page, who has done a lot of work in diversity inclusion, and he has looked at like-minded thinking groups versus more diverse thinking in those groups and found out that when you have all like-minded people, you put in an error rate of 30% right there. So we have so much more opportunity when we can break through what is that echo chamber of the voices we've always heard, the way we've always thought about things, and bring more people to the table and make sure that they come out um, with their ideas and their values. Yeah, that uh, not just diversity of gender, but of all types of thought of perspectives, backgrounds, cultures. Yeah, all bring of that. somebody from a different department who hasn't thought about it in a different way. It changes everything. Yeah. One of the things that also struck me, as you had mentioned, Sally, was part of the quote boys club, which is something that really goes back to childhood. And um, you've spoken for a long time on a campaign called Lead Like a Girl, which is uh, based on the idea that the uh, words like a girl have always been an insult. You know, the, the girls are not as good. The boys have their own club. It's always perceived as a little bit better. Um, do you have any of those stories as well with sort of the early childhood, you know, how girls are changing things right from the beginning? Absolutely. One of the, my favorite stories uh, in the book is from a nine-year-old girl's perspective. And um, in that case, the young girl is named Lily, and she lives in rural Arkansas. And um, she's about to step up from being a fifth grader into a sixth grader. And um, when I heard the story, she it was told that, that the sixth graders all had jobs. And a lot of the girls took jobs where they were running between the classrooms, carrying notes, doing things for the teacher, being very helpful. And But yet there was another set of jobs that little Lily noticed was something she really wanted to do. And in this rural suburban neighborhood, 
everybody comes and goes in and out of the school, about 500 cars every single day. And they are shepherded onto the grounds in a very prominent way by the fact that there are six different school helpers, crossing helpers that meet the cars uh, there. And Lily, for years, kept looking, going, I want to do that. I want to do that. And so when she looks at the list of jobs that she could do, she said she wanted to be a crossing guard helper. And lo and behold, she was told, no, you can't do that. That's a job for boys. Mm. And that was just last year. So this isn't even a tale from decades ago. This was a tale from 2018. And so what Lily did was she said, that's not fair. I want to be a crossing guard. So she put together 12 girls and they all signed petitions. They walked into the principal's office. They made their case. And lo and behold, if you go to the school right now, you're going to see Lily and two other female friends as crossing guards and then three boys on the other side of the street. And I think it's just a wonderful thing about how you can have this good confidence in young girls that we don't want to see disappear because it uh, helps pay dividends throughout your lifetime. I love I love seeing the next generation really stepping up and all that hope. And uh, I can tell you, I saw a picture of my own niece who was one day dressed up as both in a princess dress and had a Batman costume at the same time <laughs> and felt like, well, why can't I be both Batman and Cinderella at the same time? I see no conflict with it. So, uh, you know, it's so inspiring to hear those stories and all that hope in a way that you never maybe thought about before you assumed was a barrier in the past. So I want to go back to the concept of 480. This is our 480 podcast. Um, and two of the concepts there that, you know, the 480 days, which is two years where companies are, there's a lot of companies right now who have set business goals over the next couple of years to improve their diversity numbers and to become more inclusive cultures. Uh, so what kinds of things should they be doing at the level to actually make sure they reach those goals? Because we hear a lot that they they have them uh, and then, you know, the deadline whooshes by and nothing has really gotten done. Right. And this is not an overnight thing, which is why we put it in the category of 480 days, mm-hmm. which is equivalent to about two years of an individual's career. Um, and so what is it that we need to do as leaders to put in systems that can help um, us advance and meet our goals for diversity and inclusion. So one of the things is I talked about recruiting and selecting. So the way you do that, what assessments, what processes you put in place, when you are able to force a system that drives objectivity and making sure we're really looking not at the surface, but at what a person can do, what their capabilities are, and where they're able to grow and thrive um, really helps because otherwise you're competing against a bias of people wanting to promote people who are just like them or have had the same background, the same pathway. And that means we're just perpetuating a lot of the same if we do that. So we need to drive objectivity with assessments. Um, One of the key ways to do that is through interviews. Um, So an interview is not just one that is a selection decision for the single hiring manager. We want to make sure that interviews include 
several other individuals, we suggest up to three structured questions that are there, and then you have to have data integration. So we're all able to help validate and make objective the reason why this person is the best candidate um, around there. And then finally, we need to be able to support and advance specific groups of individuals. Um, so we can make special tracks to help advance um, or early career women. Uh, for example, um, we have a program that we're implementing right now with early career physicians who are becoming leaders. Mm -hmm. And I love it. They're calling it Physician Lead Hership. And it's a 12-month program that we're it, um, that they're being invested in uh, to think about themselves through the lens of as a woman leader and then being prepared to take on the mantle of leadership. And so that's just one example of early career, but that would rise all the way up. Um, also creating an inclusive environment. What part do managers play in ensuring that all those voices are brought to the table to help um, create diverse thinking along the way? And that's a really good point about the managers. So, you know, from the company level, I love the idea of assessments where you can just show what you can do. It's not just about who's had the most face time with the boss or who has all the right networking contacts, but it's about uh, everybody having an equal footing to just show what they can do. I love that. Uh, but to your point about managers, uh, as an individual, so somebody listening to this podcast right now saying, those are great ideas, but I'm just one person. Uh, what do they do today? to be more inclusive, you know, in their 480 minutes a day, how do they change their behavior to actually start to get more diversity and inclusion? So I think the, the heart of diversity comes in what you do every single day to create that inclusive environment. And it's at the heart of the core behaviors and the conversations that leaders have every day. So that gets us to not 480 days, but actually 480 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's what leaders do every single day in those interactions. And so specifically, um, the heart of what DDI teaches is um, five key principles um, to make sure that we meet the personal needs of individuals. And so our key principles are um, the most powerful interaction behaviors that anyone at any level, leader or not, can use. And I can tell you that we have over 160 um, validation studies that take a look at the key principles and show that they work around the world. And when leaders learn them, when they use them consistently, they have a profound impact on not only productivity, but engagement, on safety, on people's ability to innovate and change. And so the key principles are esteem, empathy, involvement, share, and providing support. And so if I were to dig into those, what they do is help people know that they are valued, their contributions are worthwhile and that they make a difference. They also um, help make sure that people understood that they are being listened to, that you're really listening, not only to what they're saying, but the meaning behind them. Help them feel like their ideas and their contributions have been brought together to the forefront 
help them understand the rationale for things and they will be able to be more bought in according to that and that you as a leader or as a partner or a friend have support to give. And you can provide that in a way that is going to be differentiated for them and their career. So those are the hearts of the key principles that any leader or non-leader can put into place to really create that inclusive environment. Because what do people want to do? They want to know they're feeling valued. They want to know that they are trusted. And they want to know that they are empowered. Yeah, I can see how, you know, when you're working hard to make everyone on your team feel included in key decisions or to involve them in projects, um, that creates a whole different environment. And when you're doing that, thinking about that as a leader, it doesn't matter who the people are on your team, whether it's men or women or what their backgrounds are, that that really changes and creates a different playing field. Um, and your point about empathy as well, uh, you know, recognizing where people are coming from, what, why they're approaching different situations the way they are is uh, so critical. So before we wrap up, this podcast is all about making every moment of leadership count. Can you tell me about a moment of leadership that had an impact on your life? I, I think I really realized how important um, leadership was and the leadership conversations were um, in one of my first months at DDI um, a couple decades ago, um, I had spent an entire day with a group and we had worked through the key principles that I just talked about. And uh, we were digging in, doing exercises, and people were really um, learning not only what it was, but how to express empathy, how to maintain and enhance self-esteem. And I met a gentleman there who came in the next day and he told me the story that when he got home he found out when he walked up to the the table in the kitchen that his wife was sitting there crying because she had been let go from her job during the day while he was in training with me and uh, this is before cell phones and all that so he, he didn't get the news till he walked home and and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what did you do? And so he sat down with her, and he um, said, I held her hand, and I looked her in the eyes, and, and I said, tell me about it. And so she talked about how she got summoned to go into the boss's office, which was a huge rarity, and that when she walked down there, he, he said, oh, my gosh, you must have been so scared. And she said, I was, and then I knocked on the door, and he let me in and he told me that that um, that they were having to make some cuts and it wasn't performance-based, but it was seniority-based and she was one of the last ones into the organization and so they were going to have to let her go. And so she walked back down the hallway and when she was packing up her desk, everybody kept coming over and nobody had told anyone yet. So she's the one who's having to relay the news to her coworkers and buck them up. And I'm like, oh my God, hon, that had to be terrible. And, and she said, yeah. And she said, I, I was, I was just really, I was feeling really proud because a lot of people told me about how much I'd contributed and what an impact I'd made, but how sad they were. And so Anyway, I walked out and I got home and I'm so glad you're here, hon. 
And and I said, oh, this is amazing. So I, I'm really proud of you. How did it go? And how long were you there? And he said, well, we talked for about 45 minutes. And I ended and I said, so how are you feeling now? And she looked at me. And with all this sincerity, she goes, I'm so confused. And she said, why? And she said, well, who are you? You're not the man that left this morning. <laughs> and, and and he realized that what he'd been doing was putting into practice those profound leadership skills that he had just learned because the heart of empathy was about listening, really listening to what she was saying, hearing her emotions and reacting appropriately. And he said, I have to tell you, the if this had happened 24 hours earlier, I would have said, pat her on the back and said, hun, that's okay. Don't worry about it. What we're going to do is dust off your resume tonight. Mm -hmm. We're going to gussy it all up and we'll get you back out there firing on all cylinders, um, you know, by the end of the week. Don't worry about it. Solved. He would have problem solved. And that's not what she needed at the time. And so he really realized how every minute that you have as a leader and those skills that you even learn at the office can be applied at home and they can have a profound impact on the people we work with and the people we love. Yeah, making every single one of those minutes, you know, we talk about the 480 minutes at work, but it bleeds over into everything. It is every every minute you have making those conversations go better. And I'm sure for in many ways for him that uh, what he chose to do in those couple of minutes, listen rather than problem solve, might have changed the course of his marriage a bit um, and changed their relationship. Tacey, I want to thank you for the great conversation today. And for all of our listeners, thank you. We know your time is valuable. That's what we're all about. Uh, and we thank you for sharing some of your precious minutes with us. This is Beth Alms here with Tacey Byam, reminding you to make every moment of leadership count. You've been listening to the Leadership 480 podcast. To learn more about 480 leadership, visit ddiworld.com slash 480.